Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 7 Building Bridges At the high table, the professors ate. Professor Kettleburn, seemingly more scar tissue than wizard, has only one hand, and so his cutlery danced around his plate of its own accord to slice and spear his food. Another professor, whom Hermione didn't recognize from McGonagall's photos, ate slowly and oddly, slicing her food into minuscule portions and swallowing without chewing, hardly even moving her jaws. Her eyes were wide and owl-like, her cheekbones high, her face sickly pale. Riddle, Hermione noticed, ate nothing. In fact, she couldn't recall ever seeing him eat anything, tonight or at any other meal. Every now and then she saw him pick something off a platter, but he invariably handed it off to the black dog that lay at his feet. On either side of him, Karkaroff ate like an ordinary person, and Madame Maxime ate and drank in prodigious quantities, which was to say, like an ordinary person of unordinary size. But Riddle ate nothing whatsoever, even Professor Lupin, who ate very little and with apparent reluctance, at least ate it all. Before the platters vanished themselves, Riddle piled up a heap of shepherd's pie and pumpkin pie and put the plate on the ground. Then, when the platters were gone, Riddle stood and waited until silence settled in the great hall. I hope that everyone, students and guests alike, has had a pleasant first day at Hogwarts, he said. It is now time to reveal the goblet of fire and begin the first phase of the Triwizard Tournament, the choosing of champions. In a corner of the great hall was a house-elf, dressed in a bright motley of clothing and carrying a jeweled casket. It was nearly as large as the house-elf, but he seemed to have no trouble with that, whether through elvish magic or the lightness of the casket itself. Riddle crouched down to take the casket with both hands, then set it on the high table. "'Thank you, Toby,' he said, and the house-elf disapparated. Hermione hadn't known that was possible, but maybe the headmaster could selectively permit certain individuals to violate the anti-disapparation jinx, or maybe house-elves could simply elude some forms of wizarding magic. While Hermione ruminated, Riddle acted, and by the time Hermione remembered that there was a world outside her brain, the Goblet of Fire was on full display. It was less beautiful than she had imagined. The wood was white, with a few brown streaks that marred the surface more than adorned it, and the cup had been inexpertly carved, as though an apprentice woodcarver had worked on it. Even so, someone had seen fit to select it for the tournament and laid any number of enchantments upon it. Already it was full of blue fire, burning gently without fuel and almost spilling over the brim. The Triwizard Tournament is a competition between our three schools, but it is also an opportunity to bind ourselves together in a spirit of fellowship. It is an event that brings together the students of Berberton, Durmstrang, and Hogwarts, and nowhere else. Only three of you will have the honor of representing these schools in the tournament, but everyone here already holds the distinction of attending these schools at all. A cheer went out from the Slytherin table, but quieted before Hermione could look over and identify its source. The champions will experience three trials, Riddle continued, each of which will be exacting in its own way. There will be danger here even if death itself will probably not be present, and I caution anyone against entering the tournament lightly. The tournament will represent us to each other, but the trials will be attended 
by the official representatives of other schools and other countries, so anyone whose conduct brings shame on themselves will besmirch the reputation of us all and be remembered with disdain by each of our schools. Riddle paused briefly. Babette Hall, Durmstrang, and Hogwarts like to consider themselves the three greatest schools of magic in the world. We can debate the exact placement, but this is your opportunity to prove that there are at least no better schools than ours, and open ourselves to the scorn of the entire world. Riddle paused for a moment, perhaps to let that sink in. The Goblet of Fire will remain here in the Great Hall, behind the High Table. At any time, you may make yourself a candidate by writing your name in school on a bit of parchment and putting it into the Goblet of Fire. Next Friday, after dinner, the Goblet of Fire will select three champions to represent our schools. There is no year restriction, but again, I warn you against submitting your name without thinking long and hard about it. The Goblet of Fire will know your true potential, or so it is said, but you may be unwilling to make the sacrifices which are necessary to achieve that potential. Putting your name at the Goblet of Fire makes you party to a binding, magical contract. Any champion who refuses to participate will be disqualified, and disqualification will mean expulsion. If you are chosen, then your only choice will be to walk along the path that is set out for you, or hope that you can find education outside Western Europe. A small stand was conjured for the Goblet of Fire, and then Riddle departed. A few students gathered around the Goblet of Fire almost as soon as Riddle left, but most, it seemed, were willing to give the thing some space for now. Even Haywood, Hermione noticed, didn't put her name in that night, and after fifteen minutes the Great Hall was largely empty again. Unobscured by student bodies, the Goblet of Fire flickered white-blue, and the flames rose high, reminding her of Peregrine Derrick's body and the torture, the sheer damage that Haywood had inflicted on him. Even when she turned away, nose-deep in Hogwarts' history, she could hear the crackling of the fire, and though she had to be imagining it, Hermione could even smell the burnt meat charcoal and sulfur of the arena stage. After Hermione retreated to the carriage, she spent half an hour on Scrabble with Samara and Vicente, just long enough to make sure she could retire to bed without making anyone concerned. It had been a long day, and she hadn't simply retreated to her room at the first available opportunity, so she had to be doing all right. Whether she was trying to convince herself or just the others, however, her sleep was certainly troubled. It would have been nice to remember her dreams, or even a snatch of something that she could examine or record, something she could deal with, but she awoke with nothing but a lingering sense of unease. Through the haze of not-quite-wakefulness, she became aware that Fleur was there, and asking if she was going to be coming for breakfast. The prospect of eating in the Great Hall was frankly unappetizing, and would be for as long as the Goblet of Fire remained there. But Hermione didn't need to read any tea leaves to know that Fleur would have something to say about that, so she told Fleur that she was sleeping in, and would make sure to get out before breakfast ended. Fleur seemed doubtful, but allowed it, and Hermione took her blessed time to drag herself out of bed, wash up, and force herself to the Great Hall. She got there only a few minutes before the stroke of nine o'clock, but still managed to grab a buckwheat crepe and some apple slices before the platters vanished. "'See,' Hermione said, when Fleur arched an eyebrow. Fleur smiled, and if she was bothered by Hermione's subsequent withdrawal from the Great Hall, then Hermione left too quickly to see it. 
It was incredibly poor manners to walk and eat at the same time, and she hadn't even taken time to peel the apples, but Hermione didn't care. Her paltry breakfast was finished before she returned to the carriage, and then her only regret was that she hadn't taken more. It had been easy to ignore her stomach before it had gotten a bit of food, and now it was as awake as the rest of her. Hermione responded with the one thing that could crowd out her mind of any other concerns, and returned to Hogwarts a history. Soon enough she learned that an heirloom artifact of the school's founders, the Sword of Godric Gryffindor, was on display on the third floor, in the very place where Tom Riddle had used it to kill Dumbledore. Bagshot took pains not to put it quite like that, but Hermione could read between the lines. Technically, the sword was only on loan to Hogwarts. Bagshot, who was writing the history of a school and not the whole country, only glossed over the details. But she had provided enough information for Hermione to dig up the rest of the story. According to Lambs and Lions, the Wizengamot had been exceedingly active following its reformation in early 1983. Non-wizards were allowed to carry wands, though issues of supply and the need for training meant that some people were still on the waiting list, at least as of 1989, when Lambs and Lions was published. Wolfsbane Potion was made freely available to any werewolves that wanted it, and for those who didn't, monthly port keys were created to send them to island reserves, stocked with game and forbidden even to many members of the ministry. Aristocratic estates, including Malfoy Manor, were seized, the Muggleborn Protection Act was enacted, and the first abduction adoptions were carried out almost before the ink had dried. The Wizard Gamut hadn't neglected the goblins amid all this. Most relevantly to Hermione's current topic of research, Riddle had overseen the Chattels and Remainders Law, which provided that the laws of the Goblin Reticuld would retroactively take precedence in all economic dealings with goblins and wizards. The way Bagshot put it, Riddle had technically owned the Sword of Gryffindor for a time, either because he drew it from the Sorting Hat or because he was the school's headmaster, but in any case, the Chattels and Remainders Law made all that moot. His ownership, such as it might have been, didn't even extend into 1983, because he had voluntarily relinquished any right he might have had to it. It was now owned by Forcaw Goadslab, heir to the ancient Ragnarok, who had forged the Sword of Gryffindor, and only remains at Hogwarts because it was Riddle who had made the request. However much Bagshot seemed to dislike it, and she spent almost a whole page to explain why Hogwarts would never be forced to part with one of its treasures, it was exceedingly unlikely that Forcaw would extend that privilege to the next headmaster. Eventually, Hermione was able to pull herself away from her books in order to grab lunch. That meant returning to the Great Hall, where she slapped tomatoes and cheese between a couple of slices of sourdough and made off with the carriage again. This time Hermione was able to wait until she was sitting, but it did bother her a little that she didn't have any cutlery. Etiquette probably didn't actually apply in the privacy of her own room, but the wrongness of it was still there, like an unscratchable itch in the back of her brain or right where the autohexer had lain on her wrist. The most extraordinary and pleasant thing about the carriage was not that it contained a library, or even that there was enough space that everyone had their own, admittedly small, bedroom, but the fact that every window provided roughly the same view of the Black Lake. It was not nearly so black now, with the light of the afternoon sun shining overhead, but there was a seeming bottomlessness to it, even so. She could see Vicente enter the water along with some Durmstrang students, while a couple of Slytherins looked on in disbelief from the shore. Not far off from them, Adali was practicing solo drills, moving with a sharp, determined grace that belied her ordinary languidness. Outside everything was beautiful, and the view felt so far away from the dueling arena of the day before. 
Hermione didn't write letters home every week, but when she did, she wrote her letters on Saturday so that she would have Sunday free to prepare for the next week's classes. It was her first week abroad, and her parents would be expecting something, so she reluctantly set her books aside, put away her notebooks, and set out some nice stationery in their place. There was no telling whether she would still be up for writing letters tonight after dinner and portrait club, so she had to accomplish it now. The easiest letter to write was to Hermione's grandparents. They still didn't know what she really was, who she was, whispered an uncomfortable voice in her head. So every conversation with them had already been, on some level, a lie. There were countries where the grandparents of a Muggleborn could be told about magic, but France wasn't one of them. They knew only that she was attending a boarding school on the border, but it had high entrance standards, and Hermione was happy there, so they couldn't be more satisfied. Miranda wasn't much harder. Hermione couldn't exactly promise pictures of Hogwarts or even the local landscape, because their parents could probably tell the difference between Norway and Scotland, and Hermione wasn't ready for that conversation, but there had to be something that could be photographed. Miranda would probably like the dungeons. She was getting melodramatic these days, and would more than likely make an excellent goth in just a few years. However, writing to her parents was a challenge. She could make things up, and it wouldn't matter if her story broke apart after she returned, because she would be back by then, and there'd be nothing to do about it by that point, but it was still uncomfortable. Lies of omission felt different than an outright fabrication, at least then, if and when Hermione came clean, there would just be some gaps to fill. Except for the Norway thing, but she had to say she was going somewhere, and besides, one lie was not the same as one thousand. In the end, Hermione wrote about her classes, which she knew would be perfectly in character for her, and about the food, to the extent that she could definitely recognize which cuisine belonged to Durmstrang, mentioning anything that was too obviously British might raise suspicions. The odd system that Professor Malfoy employed in this classroom was surely safe to bring up, and Portrait Club didn't sound like it would be that bad. She went to dinner late, and didn't regret the delay one bit. The great hall was full of the smell of roast meat. If she so much as looked to her right, she could see the goblet of fire on the other side of the room, its flames flickering and dancing just behind Headmaster Riddle. Somewhere down the Hufflepuff table, there was a wisp of conversation, and laughter broke out in response to a joke she couldn't quite hear. Haywood's voice was somewhere in the mix. Unbidden, Hermione's mind conjured visions of the duel, and Haywood standing triumphant over Derek, over Dahlia, over Fleur and she absently fingered the glass beetle pin on the inside of her collar. She wished that she could summon Maxime's help for someone else. It wouldn't do any good. Everyone had chosen to be here and to stay here. She alone had been given a way out because she was young, weak, in danger. Hermione picked over a mushroom quiche, and at Fleur's insistence had a bit of almond caramel cake. But if any of it hit her tongue, then she didn't notice. When Ginny came to fetch her for Portrait Club... It was a relief to have an excuse to leave. To make conversation along the way, Hermione asked what her family did for a living. Hermione expected the answer to be short, but it turned out that Ginny had rather a lot of family. Ginny's mother kept the family gardens and tended to their animals. The Weasleys had a coop full of chickens and several pigs, and this accounted for most of what landed on the dinner table. Her father worked as some sort of freelance handy wizard, occasionally enchanting things, but mostly fixing the enchantments that other people laid down, even performing a few difficult disenchantments whenever someone's inherited trunk from Great Uncle Norvi or whomever wouldn't stay put at home or insisted on eating the local wildlife or something like that. It was good, if not particularly steady, work, 
and generally just enough to cover the family's other expenses. But Jenny had more siblings than just the few Hermione had noted so far. Her eldest brother, Bill, was a curse-breaker at Gringotts Bank, which was a remarkably similar job to their father's, but a little less dangerous and much more prestigious. Charlie, whom Hermione had seen sitting at the high table during meals, was the assistant professor for care of magical creatures, and due to take over for Kettleburn as soon as he was old enough. And Percy, the first of the Slytherin Weasleys, had joined up with the Department of International Magical Cooperation, which had put him in a very good position, considering that the DIMC had hardly even existed until last year. Hermione was explaining what her own parents did, and trying, with the experience that came with telling it to many other witches and wizards over the years, to not make them sound like professional torturers, when she almost walked into the big black dog that she'd seen in the Great Hall. She stopped in her tracks. She'd never seen such a large dog before. It had a strong, heavy build like a mastiff, and was easily three feet tall at the shoulders. Ginny patted her shoulder, and Hermione relaxed. "'That's Padfoot, the headmaster's dog,' Ginny said. "'He's all right if you're not doing anything wrong. "'It can be a lot of fun, actually, "'but he's awfully clever and always seems to know if you're up to something. "'If he sees you wandering out of bounds or after curfew, "'then you're sure to get his attention, even if there was nobody else around. "'I don't know how the headmaster does it. "'Maybe you can use legitimacy on a dog,' she added in a thoughtful tone. "'Padfoot leaned over and scratched an ear with his back paw for a moment, "'then recentered his gaze on them.' "'We're not doing anything against the rules now, are we?' Hermione asked. Ginny smiled. "'Of course not. I wouldn't get you into trouble on your second day.' "'Maybe thinks we've got something for him, but we don't,' she said in a high-pitched voice, and she put her hands out toward Padfoot, palms out. "'No snacks!' "'He's like that,' Ginny said, as if she were remarking on one of the great mysteries of the universe, and perhaps it was appropriate. He was a dog. How complicated could his motivations be?' But he was a dog, and dog just did things sometimes. Any animal that could eat grass, vomit, and then eat its vomit was probably sure to be unfathomable in its motivations, Hermione decided. At least cats kept themselves clean. As Ginny explained on their way over, Portrait Club made a point of only meeting in disused rooms. There were enough at Hogwarts to make that possible, even if they couldn't always meet in the same room from year to year. And while this was Portrait Club, her brothers were all a part of it and two in particular could sometimes make a mess. Nobody wanted to explain to a professor why the classroom floor was missing. Headmaster Riddle had a certain tolerance for troublesome ingenuity, but only insofar as it didn't interrupt anyone's education. "'It's really all about who's dishing out the punishment,' Ginny said. "'The headmaster never removes points, but his detentions can be scary. But then Professor Lupin always takes points.' because he doesn't have time to oversee detention, and because he doesn't want to add to anyone's workload if they can't add to his. But really the worst thing is that he can just be so sad about what you did that you're miserable. Fred and George could probably get away with doing something to his office, you know, but I think they just don't have the heart for it. What does Professor Lupin work on? He teaches two classes. It helps with the both electives, and that werewolf studies combines all four houses, but he still spends more time teaching than anyone else. And he's the Gryffindor's head of house. And he's out of commission for a couple days every time there's a full moon. He teaches all seven years. Hermione had thought it a little odd to see that two of her classes were being taught by the same professor, but at that point she had been under the impression that Hogwarts, like Bobaton, gave different years to different professors. Longbottom's explanations of the potions groups contradicted that idea, however. Yeah, I don't know how he does it. I can't imagine why he does it. Oh, that's obvious. 
He's the only werewolf to get an education at Hogwarts before the laws changed. He feels responsible. The club room was bigger than Hermione expected, but then the attendance was bigger than she would have imagined, too, and there were at least forty students, most of them sitting on couches or laying on large pillows, all facing one of the walls, where a pair of very small curtains hung closed. Nearer the back, the couches were stacked on all sorts of things to elevate them over the people sitting in front. Ginny led her to another redhead, who was talking with a hulking boy, both of them in sporting bright green ties, and two students from Durmstrang. "'This is my brother Ron and Greg. I don't know who the others are,' Ginny said. "'I know who one Hermione began before that one spoke up. "'Hello. I am Dmitry Polyakov.' He extended a hand in greeting and nearly toppled over, but the other Durmstrang boy snatched up the back of his collar before Hermione even registered Polyakov's imbalance. "'Ah, oh, thank you, Victor. Always such a good friend,' Polyakov said happily, and, still half-suspended by his collar, he withdrew a flask from his left sleeve and took a drink. Victor sighed. "'I am Victor Crumb. We are being from Durmstrang.' "'Not being,' Polyakov mumbled as he settled down on a nearby couch. "'We are from Durmstrang,' he corrected. "'I am sorry. My English is—' He waggled his hand in the air. "'Imperfect,' Crumb smiled. "'Ron invited us. You are from France, are you not?' Hermione nodded. "'I'm Hermione Granger. Pleased to meet you. Ginny brought me.' "'Exactly.' As I was saying, Victor, Fred, and George call it Weasley Club sometimes. The whole family is here, pretty much, Ron said. Not the whole family, Ginny said. Ron glared at her. You're right, Percy's not here anymore. It's funny you should bring him up, considering he's working for the Ministry now. But I guess anything's okay for Percy. Working for the Ministry isn't the problem. Not when Percy's working there now, Ginny said. Um, Ron... Greg started, but Ron barreled forward on heating... He's making something of himself. So's Bill, Ginny replied. And he didn't have to join the ministry to do it. I'll just say the ministry isn't... At least Percy isn't tightening a Death Eater, Ron said close to shouting. Hermione wondered what exactly he thought was wrong about that. He was the first student Hermione had met who was so open with his disapproval, but Greg caught her eye just as she was about to ask, and the anxious expression on his face made her close her mouth without uttering a sound. Ginny looked about ready to raise the volume in the room herself, but then a small, terrible-smelling explosion erupted between her and Ron, and tragically almost directly under Hermione's nose. And Ginny and Ron, and half the room besides, backed away as if they'd been scalded by hot water. "'Worry not, citizens! Only a minor dung-bomb incident!' someone called. Hermione moved back as well as she could without stumbling over a cushion, pinching her nose to block the smell while offended sounds arose from the rest of the room. "'Here, I've got some chattering teeth,' was all Hermione heard before a disembodied pair of jaws clattered across the floor, then exploded in a cloud of blue-white sparks like astral snowflakes. The smell was gone instantly, replaced by the aroma of fresh mint, a nasty chill, and the sound of forty or so clacking jaws. "'Not a concern. I've got some edible fireballs. Everyone sit tight and—' "'No!' Jenny said. "'No fire. We'll just wait for the enchantment to end, all right?' "'If our favorite sister asks, how can we deny her?' Another pair of freckly redheads stepped into view, these two identical. "'Jenny, are these our two newest future club members?' one asked. And then, before she could respond, he extended a hand. "'I'm Greg, and this is my brother Forge,' he said, while his brother introduced himself to Crum and Polyakov, but swapped their names. "'Wait, wait, but he just—' "'But you can call me Grendrick.' "'I—' Hermione trailed off— 
too confused to know where to start. "'He's George, and the other one's Fred,' Ginny said. "'No, he's not, I'm Fred,' he protested, and Ginny sighed. "'That was old before I started Hogwarts. Anyway, I'm going to find Luna and be right back.' "'Be nice,' Ginny said. Standing on tiptoes, Ginny still only came up to the twins' noses, but they looked a little intimidated nevertheless. George grinned. "'Apologies for the freeze,' he whispered as Ginny walked away. "'Sometimes there's no other way to head off an argument, you see?' Suddenly Hermione's robes felt a little heavier. "'Fudge flies for the show.' "'I... okay,' Hermione said. There were some things not worth pressing. "'Ginny said that you watched the portraits talk to each other,' Hermione said. Slowly the room began to grow warm, or at least less cold again. "'Watch them argue was more like it,' George said. "'Portrait Club was originally a more legitimate enterprise. They actually made portraits, if you can believe it. But by the time Fred and I got to school, the club had decided this was more fun. Even the professors agree. With all that to do about the tournament, though, he's probably going to be too busy to show up. He usually doesn't come around this early in the year anyway. "'And it's time!' Fred snapped his fingers and whirled his wand. "'Sir Norris, you're up, George!' George leaned over the tip of Fred's wand. "'Welcome, everyone, to Portrait Club! I'm the president of Portrait Club, Fred Weasley!' Fred drew his wand back for a moment. "'And I'm vice president, also Fred Weasley, but you can call me Al!' George pointed to the wall behind him where the curtains hung. "'For tonight's entertainment, we have a pair of luminaries from the 17th century, Thaddeus Thurkle and Robert Mulciber!' With a snap of his fingers, the curtains fell to reveal a pair of portraits, one of them a middle-aged wizard with silver hair, and the other of an older man with a nose like a sharp carrot. They glowered at each other and the audience in equal measure. Not only were they fierce opponents of the days before the Statute of Secrecy, but one of them actually killed the other. Maybe you'd like to explain why, Robert? he asked. But Mulciber's portrait gave only a tight-lipped and severe expression. While George waited in vain for Robert Mulciber's portrait to say anything, Ginny returned with the straggly-haired girl with silver eyes, and the three of them found seats just to the left of Crum and Polyakov. Ginny handed Hermione a mug of butterbeer and a bag of roasted hazelnuts. "'No witty remarks for the man who killed you?' George asked. He leaned over to Fred's wand again. "'Sorry, folks, this is going to take a minute. They've been here before and they're proving a little reluctant.' But I think I can get the show started anyway, because they've never been here together, and that is, I know something about Robert Mulciber that you don't. Thurkle stared down at him, sneering. The sneer was at least twice as good as Mulciber's. You don't know this because it happened after he killed you, but eight years after your duel, Mulciber was accused of improprieties with his house-elf. Thurkle's eyes lit up. Go to, Sarah! An amplifying charm must have been applied to him already, because his voice was clear and audible. You actually laid with a house elf! Thurkle looked at George. Pay tell me this, that this mudblood did not breed and pollute the blood of our society with half-elvish, muggleish spawn. Several club members booed at the slur. Mulciber, in his own portrait, looked startled and turned. What lies are never... Thurkle smirked. Do the ears of your descendants yet droop after all these centuries? Lies and slander. I never treated Yibble with anything but propriety, unlike you, who could not treat your own family with the slightest measure of decency. I did nothing but what was for the good of my sister and her children. My family's name may have died out for her children and their children, till the seventh generation lived upright lives in the pure and sacrosanct wizarding society that I helped build for them. To her left, Polyakov and the other boy, Victor, something, were engaged in hushed conversation. 
Hermione couldn't make out exactly what it was, but it sounded rather like Polyakov kept saying her name. Was he asking for her butterbeer? Well, her mug was rather untouched, and Polyakov had just finished off Victor's. She passed it to Victor, who passed it to Polyakov, but that didn't really stop the chatter. It is a strange definition of honor, is it not? That includes turning on your own little ones, Melzibur said. And oh, yes, pardon me, I'm certain that your personal liaisons were honorable as well. Zwoons, there is no doubt your wife was delighted to know that you held her dear to your breast, and every other witch in England. Indeed, you were very pure, he made a noise of disgust. I never loved anyone but my Elizabeth, but I did what was necessary for the sake of keeping my family's name alive through the ages. "'Including what you did to your children?' "'I have no children!' Knuckles' portrait cried. "'You had seven, that is, and you transfigured them into hedgehogs. "'Should I have dropped them in the river, or left them to die on the side of the road? "'The shame of them was great, and yet I kept them and cared for them. "'Squibbish changelings, though they might have been, I bore my curse, every aspect of it, "'though I know not why it was laid against my house.' "'Such nobility there is in you. "'Truly, you're a modern Job. "'God's teeth! "'Do you ever listen to yourself?' "'Mosbrough sneered and turned to the audience. "'No wonder this backless adulterer "'wanted to cut the world in twain "'and separate us from the muggles. "'He cannot even imagine his own children as human.' "'Not any more, that is!' "'shouted someone in the back, and so it went. "'Their argument going round and round "'with interruptions and commentary from the audience "'until Thurkle crossed over to the other portrait "'and broke his cane against Mulciber's head. "'After it was all over, "'Fred and George had to take the paintings off the wall "'and shake them beside each other "'until Thurkle fell through the frames "'and back where he belonged. "'Polyakov and Victor had never really stopped talking, "'but now they brought Hermione into it. "'Her... my... own... Victor started, and Polyakov punched him lightly in the shoulder and whispered something. My, her, my, only, he said, and when no second punch came, he repeated it with more confidence. Her, my, only. Hermione nodded. Yes, she said. You are from Bobeton, but Ron says you are a fourth year. You see, at Durmstrang, only the seventeen and eighteen-year-old students were permitted to come. I am wondering why Bobeton is different. I'm the youngest student in the Bobeton delegation. I was born in Britain, but my family moved to France when I was young, so I wanted to visit, and my grades were good, and... And someone in the French government pulled strings for her. Or for someone, anyway, in a manner that was working out for her. Hermione frowned, drawing back into her mind. Why was she here? Was this really all just for some good press in the loon? What is the matter? Victor's thick, rolling voice snapped her back to the present. Oh, and I have a lot of classes that I'm taking by correspondence. I'm working on multiple programs, and not all of them have counterparts here. The only way I could make it work was by correspondence. I haven't started any. I was going to study tomorrow, but those are just the Hogwarts classes. How many classes are you taking? Alchemy, arithmetic, astronomy. Eleven, Hermione said. Victor's eyes widened. He turned back to Polyakov and said something in Norwegian. Polyakov snorted and said something equally foreign, and then Victor returned his attention to Hermione. I am not taking nearly so many classes, he said, his voice full of awe. I'm going to fail them all, Hermione muttered. She could already see it in Hermione's eye. Madame Maxime disappointed. Professor McGonagall, I told you so, 
Fleur, sad, shocked. I've got to go. Sorry, sorry. It was nice to meet you. I mean, Victor. Victor. Victor Crumb, he said. Right, Crumb, nice to meet you. Sorry, goodbye, she said. Behind her, Victor Crumb and Polyakov were talking animatedly and quickly again. But even if she had known Norwegian, Hermione couldn't possibly have taken the time to eavesdrop. There were still a couple hours left in the day, right? And there was always pepper-up potion to keep her up until the morning. She could make up for lost time. She could still get on schedule. It was okay. Everything was going to be fine. Hermione would have barreled right into Fleur on her way to the carriage, if not for the other girl's reflexes and, more importantly, greater situational awareness, which what to say at that moment, any at all. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. Was I, no, look, the, the carriage, I'm already... Breathe, Fleur said. And Hermione breathed. My clothes, Hermione said. You will be fine, Fleur said. So it had to be true. So Hermione let herself relax a little. She knew the workload that Hermione had put herself under. She knew what Hermione could do. If Fleur was confident in her, then she could be confident in herself. But she was also going to definitely get a start on her studies tonight, just as soon as she got back to her... I was looking for you, Fleur said, interrupting her thoughts. I'm going to put my name in the goblet of fire. Do you want to come with me? For all that her thoughts had been a flurry a moment ago, Hermione's mind was now at such a standstill that, by the time she had processed that, Fleur was already on the castle steps. Hermione, come along with me, she shouted. Are you sure about this? Hermione asked after she caught up, just outside the great hall. I made my decision when I applied to join the delegation. This only makes it official. It's been months since then. You can change your mind. Luna's not entering. Samara's not entering. They were never going to enter anyway, Fleur said as she entered the great hall. Every step took the two of them closer to the goblet of fire. Every second that passed without Hermione knowing what to say, how to convince Fleur not to do this. Italia's going to enter, isn't she? Hermione asked. I believe she already did so this afternoon. And you're still entering? You doubt me, Fleur said. And the accusation hurt. Even if her tone bespoke good humor and Fleur bore a smile on her face. No, never, Hermione said. And she stopped and turned her head away. But that's why I'm worried. Fleur walked around so that she, or at least her feet, re-entered Hermione's downcast field of vision. What are you worried about? Haywood worries me. Obviously, I, I don't want you to... I don't know how I could... I don't know what would happen if you... So you would sacrifice Idalia for me? and send out to face that dreadful Hufflepuff girl. Let Lena worry about Adalia if he loves her. I'm not sure that I could beat they wouldn't they do, Fleur admitted. Of all of us, Idalia has the best chance of achieving it, and even so, I would worry until the very end. Then you won't add your name, Hermione said, trying to keep her voice steady and free from desperation. Fleur shook her head. The tournament will not just be a duel. I don't know what tasks it will involve, but never in five centuries has it been just a duel. If I'm wrong, tell me, Fleur demanded. And when Hermione, who knew it was true, said nothing, she continued. Italia is a sword with a single edge, and she is sharp enough to slash through a moonbeam, but cutting is all she will ever do. If Italia is our champion, then she can win the duel, if there is even a duel, but she will lose the tournament. Then she loses. Fleur put a hand on Hermione's shoulder. It felt warm, 
but that only served to make Hermione realize how cold she really felt, in the rest of her body and in her heart. If you were not my friend, would you care so much about my entry into the tournament? No, but... And as my friend, could you live with yourself if I became something small and weak? You'd never be, Hermione protested. You couldn't. But if you got hurt, I wouldn't be able to live with myself, Fleur. There are more important things than... There is nothing more important than being who you are, Fleur said firmly. Because you cannot be anything else if you tried. You would become what you were trying to be. And you wouldn't be pretending anymore. Do you want to ask me to be something smaller than what I could have been? She extended a slip of parchment. Hermione didn't need to read it to know what it said. With great effort, as if she had tried to rip the word from her chest, Hermione finally said, No. Fleur smiled and dropped the parchment into the goblet of fire. The flames leapt as though she'd spilled a handful of coal dust into their belly. In an instant, the parchment was gone, and the fire turned ghostly white for a passing instant. It is done, Fleur said, and she squeezed Hermione's shoulder. Everything will be fine, you will see. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.